You can open up in your Bibles to 1 Timothy, and as you're, you're turning there, we'll be in chapter 6. I want to start by asking you to imagine something with me. Imagine some things, some, some images. First, I want you to imagine what you've probably seen many times, the morning mist. Maybe you've seen it in the hills when you looked out your window, mist laying low on the hillside that when the sun rises, slowly disappears. Imagine a flower that sprouts in your yard. It grows, it blossoms, and then it dies and goes away. Imagine a shadow that as the sun sets behind the mountains, the shadow grows long and eventually disappears in the darkness. Imagine a breeze that blows past you that you feel for a moment and then it's gone. Do you know the common thread that runs with all these images? All of these images, the morning mist, the fading flower, the shadow that slips into the dark, the wind that passes and then vanishes, these are all metaphors that the Bible uses to describe your life. These are all metaphors that the Bible uses to describe the brevity of life, the shortness of life. Life is like a mist. James says it's like a vapor. Life is like grass or like a flower. It sprouts up and then it dies. Life is like a passing wind. Life is like a shadow. Life, in other words, is short, isn't it? Life is passing us by, and life will be over before we know it. We, we don't think about this very often because we're in the midst of life. We're living uh, busy lives where we have a lot of responsibilities and a lot of things to do, and so these things are often set aside and forgotten, and we begin to live as if this life is all there is. And Scripture is repeatedly bringing before us things that should stand right in our view and say, hey, no, look. Look, your life will come to an end. <laughs> your life will soon be over. That you're like grass that will sprout and then die. You're like a shadow that will fade into the night. You're like a wind that will blow and then cease. That you're not going to live forever. And that one day, as your body expires, you will meet your Maker and you will enter eternity. This is, this is true for all of us. No one has ever escaped this reality, save, of course, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. But isn't it true that we live often as if there is no afterlife? Isn't it true that sometimes practically speaking, though on our doctrinal statement we believe in an eternity in heaven as Christians, 
And we also believe that those who have not trusted in Christ are going to experience an eternity in condemnation apart from, apart from the forgiveness that God offers. Isn't it true that we sometimes practically act like none of that's true? And day to day go on living as if we're not headed toward eternity? We forget those things, we, we leave them off, and we just get busy with whatever responsibilities are before us. We go from the next thing to the next thing. You know what happens when we live that way? What, what begins to set in is what has been called materialism. Or as what Paul has said to Timothy, this love for gain. Because if this life is all there is, then of course you're going to live for this life. You're going to do all you can to accumulate comforts, stuff, things, and that's going to be the measure of your life is how much you can gather, how much comfort you can accumulate, how many experience can, experiences can you enjoy. That's going to be the measure of your life. And the Bible just stands in stark contrast to that mindset and is always inviting us to measure our days, to, to remember they're numbered, that all of us live with a clock above our heads that's ticking and ticking, and that one day that time will be up and that we'll go home, either to be with God forever in glory or to enter into an eternity apart from God in judgment. How do you live in light of eternity? I mean, we're all supposed to live as if this is true, because it is true, but how do we actually do that? How do you wake up in the morning understanding that uh, this, is a, this is a day I'll never get back, that one day my life will be over, well, the, the time that I'm spending, I can never go back and re-spend it a different way, what I do in this life will just be done, and so it will be? How do I get to a point where I'm aware of these things, where I live in light of the coming eternity? Do you live that way? Timothy needed to live that way. In fact, this, this next section that we're going to look at is, is Paul is urging Timothy to minister in light of these eternal realities, to serve in light of who God is and what salvation is, and in contrast to the false teachers. If you were here last week, you remember that the false teachers who have their minds set on earthly things, they think that godliness is a means of gain, they, they forget the afterlife, they forget God, they forget all those spiritual realities, and so their whole ministry gets tied up into gain, earthly gain, earthly comforts. They become money-loving people who just want to accumulate in this life, and they forget about eternity. Now, Paul, the apostle, is now writing to Timothy. Timothy is in this church. He's serving in what could be described as a revitalization project, and he's urged by Paul to not slip into the same mindset. Don't go in the same direction as these false teachers. They, they love gain, and, and they're, they're so distorted in how they evaluate life, they orient their whole ministry. Their own godliness is a means to some end, and that end is money. They don't actually love God. God is just a means for them to get what they want. God is a tool they use to try to get what they want. And Timothy is supposed to be different. Let me read Paul's directions to Timothy, and while this certainly applies to him as a minister, it has great application for every individual here. We're going to talk about exactly what some of those applications 
are. Let's read verses 11 through 16. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Just to remember, he's talking about the love of money. He's talking about materialism. He's talking about using godliness as a means of gain. That's the context. Timothy, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Jesus Christ who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ which he will display at the proper time, he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. So we're going to see here how to live and minister in light of eternity, in light of who God is, in light of the eternal life that comes after this one. How do we serve? How do we minister? And for any of you who are interested in being a servant of Jesus, this is very applicable. Now that's every Christian, right? Every Christian is called to be a servant of the Lord. We have a master, Jesus. He's our master. Money's not our master. Our master is the Lord. And we say, I'm a servant of this master. Now, how do I live in light of eternity and serve in light of the coming eternity? My life is like grass. My life is like a shadow. Eternity is coming. How do I live while I have time to live? How do I maximize this life? And he's going to give us three major ideas to live in light of eternity. Here's number one. Get aggressive in your walk with Christ. Look back again at verse 11. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. You guys see the imperative here? Look at the text. You can see them. Flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Did you see the four imperatives? That if Timothy is to avoid materialism and if he's going to be faithful in light of the coming eternity, in light of his meeting with God He needs to get busy fleeing, pursuing, fighting, taking hold. These are very much aggressive words. These are imperatives. Get aggressive in your walk with Christ. Uh, Maybe there's someone who needs to hear that this morning because they've come and they've kind of drifted. Uh, They maybe have not really been following Jesus with all that fervency or all that much zeal. They've kind of been going through the motions. And what happens if that's where you're at is that you just begin to take in the toxic fumes of materialism and money loving and thinking that this world's all there is and so you start living for this world and that's never going to satisfy anyone. Uh, They say that you should never start your car while you're in the garage with the garage door closed. You guys know why? 
Because as soon as you get going, I guess this, the carbon monoxide fumes get going. They can fill up the, the garage. And in a matter of minutes, it could be very dangerous to the people who are taking in this stuff. It's, it's subtle. You can't really smell it all this much. It's a fumes that you can't really identify just by the sense of smell. But given enough time, it begins to poison the people. And they can actually die if left in a closed garage while the car's running. If you ever thought, well, why isn't that dangerous with all these cars driving around in the streets and in the roads? Isn't that dangerous? Well, well, there's a difference when you're staying still and you're in an enclosed place and this, these fumes can just get all around you. There's a difference between that and when you're on the move. You understand? When you're on the move, they, don't, they can't affect you in the same way. When the car's moving, it can't affect you the same way. I think materialism is kind of the same way. If there's no pursuit, if there's no fleeing, if there's no pursuing righteousness and godliness and all these characteristics that God calls us to do and to act, these aggressive acts of obedience, if we're not doing that and we're just sitting still, that's when the toxic fumes start to come into your life. If you haven't been pursuing, if you haven't been fleeing, it might be you've slowly, without even noticing it, begin to breathe in the toxic air of this world. You've begun to take it in. You've started to live as if this life is all you've got. You start to spend your money in ways that prove that you think that the main thing of this life is just to accumulate money, accumulate experience accumulate comfort and so what Paul has to tell Timothy don't stay still you, you can't stay still and the first word he uses you see it there is flee the Greek word there kind of sounds like fugitive be a fugitive <laughs> consider yourself hunted at every turn Consider yourself being tracked down by materialism, by money-loving, by worldliness, that if you do not flee, you will be taken in. It's on your scent. It's tracking you down. And you must be fleeing. In fact, the, even the, the form of that verb flee indicates that it's not something you do once and then you're done. No, I fled materialism a long time ago. No, 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 no. This is something that you always do. You are always fleeing. Be ever fleeing could be a translation. Be always fleeing these things. There are times when godliness means run for your life. <laughs> Get going. Get out of here. There are times when godliness doesn't mean try to step in and fight like a man. Sometimes the most godly thing to do is run for your life, run for cover because you're not strong enough to face this temptation. This is one of those temptations. This isn't a stand and fight. This is a run. This is a flee. Become a fugitive. Get going. Get busy. Get out of there. You say, okay, well, what does that mean practically? Uh, how, how am I supposed to, to do this? How, well, one of the things you have to understand is that this is so dangerous, it's taken down people throughout the ages, and it's always been warned throughout Scripture to be an imminent danger for Christians. You guys remember who Demas is in the New Testament? He's described a few times in Paul's letters, and he was described as being a co-worker with the apostle. He was doing a lot of the good work with, with Paul. And at the end of Paul's last letter, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10, Paul notes that Demas had fallen in love with the world, and he left him. The Apostle John, in chapter 2 of his letter to 1 John, he said that if you love the world, the love of the Father is not in you. 
If you, you love the world, it, you can't have two masters. You can't love the things of this world, the systems of this world, and say, oh, I love God because they're going in two opposite directions. Jesus said multiple times, how difficult is it for those with wealth to enter the kingdom of heaven? See, there's all kinds of reasons to flee, to flee the dangers all around us, and people have been taken out by falling to materialism, to money loving. Remember the parable of the sower, the soils? Remember what happens? A seed, one of those seeds, it says it falls on thorny ground. Remember that? And then Jesus, when he describes what that parable actually meant, remember what he says? That the seed, it begins to grow. Oh, look, spiritual life, it begins to grow. And then these thorns and thistles begin to choke out this newly growing plant. And what does he say the thorns and thistles are? He says they are the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches. It's subtle. It's imperceptible. You can't smell it. You don't notice it. But being in this nation where we enjoy a lot of affluence, it's all around us. And just like Paul warned Timothy all those years ago, you must be a fugitive on the run. You must flee these things. Okay, how do I do this, Eric? Okay, how do I do this? Well, he actually gives positive direction for how to do this. In other words, it's not enough to just run away. You've got to be running to something. It's not enough to just be fleeing. You have to have a destination. Uh, you might be thinking, okay, man, I I've been living in such a way that, man, I I'm just living like a materialist. I'm just loving money. I'm, uh, my whole life is oriented around these things, about worldly things. Well, what should I pursue instead? If you don't have a, if you don't have a replacement pursuit, then you're just going to repeat the same sin all over again. It's impossible to outrun your sin unless you have an alternative to run to. If you don't have a replacement for sin, it's going to be a repeat of the sin. And so he begins to give some directions for what you are to actually pursue. Do you see that there in the text? You are not only supposed to be fleeing, you are to be pursuing. New Testament often refers to putting off and putting on. You put off something and you put on something. So you flee materialism. You flee the love of money, and what do you put on? Look at what it says there. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. He lists six traits there. They're in couples that are kind of related. You could put righteousness and godliness together, and that's referring to a kind of whole person conformity to God's revealed will for your life from the heart. You are righteous, and according to His law, you want to live in obedience to it, and you're godly, referring to your character becoming like God. You are to pursue faith and love as well. That means a wholehearted trust in God, a dependence and reliance upon God, and a love for Him. That you, you genuinely have affections for your Father in heaven. And that spills, that spills out toward a love of people. Look at the next little couplet. Steadfastness, gentleness, the way you are patient with people and tender with people. Timothy's life needed to be characterized by a pursuit of these things, these characteristics. If you want to flee the love of money, you have to replace your pursuit of money with a pursuit of righteousness. You've got to replace it. 
is the second thing you got to replace it with. You got to first replace it with a pursuit of righteousness. You also got to replace it with a fight for the truth. You see that next one, verse 12? The next imperative, what is it? Fight. Fight the good fight of the faith. And remember, whenever you see the word the in front of faith, it's referring to the body of truth, the doctrines that we hold and believe. He's not saying, hey, just fight to keep believing. He's saying fight for the truth. Fight for what is true. Fight for a full understanding of biblical doctrine that God has revealed. See, see, this is really important to remember. Truth is at the heart of every issue we face in the church. Where there are rocky marriages, there are lies being believed. Where there is dysfunction in a home or in a life, there are lies being believed. Where there is sin, you, you scratch the surface, you go deep enough, there are lies being believed. We go certain directions, do certain things, behave certain ways, because at the core of it, we have certain beliefs. And if those beliefs are not true, it results in us living in harmful, sinful ways. And so what Timothy needs to do is what? You've got to fight for the truth. You've got to fight to believe that which is true. You believe things that are false, you're going to hurt people. You're going to sin against God. It's not going to be helpful. You have to fight the good fight of the faith. There's got to be some aggression here. That word for fight in Greek is agonizomai. You could, you could tell the English word we get from it. Did you hear it? Agonize. <laughs> well, how, how, do you, how are you supposed to do this? What kind of effort are you supposed to put forward? The, the kind of agonizing effort, that's how much. And so you're pursuing righteousness. You're, you're fleeing and you're pursuing this character development humbly, prayerfully, cultivating before God your own godly character, and you're doing so also by fighting for truth. You're fighting the good fight of the faith. You're fighting for it. Ask yourself, how aggressive is your obedience to Jesus Christ? Is there an aggression to your obedience? I will pursue these things. I will agonize for truth. That word agonize is used to describe athletes competing with one another for the prize. Would you use that word to describe the way you are fighting to know and understand and obey God's word? <laughs> Would you say, I agonize for truth? I agonize in, in prayer to, to God to help me understand His truth. I agonize in the Scriptures trying to understand what God's will is for my life. I'm agonizing with it. I'm fighting for it. Is there an aggression to your obedience? You replace materialism with a pursuit of righteousness. You replace materialism with a fight for the truth. Here's a third imperative. It's not only pursue, it's not only fight. Look at the end of 12. Take hold. Grab on. Seize it. This is a, another forceful word, an even violent word. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. This word is used to describe how Peter, when he was sinking, Jesus took hold of his hand and rescued him from drowning. This word is used to describe jailers who are taking hold of people and putting them in prison. This is a violent word. And this is a word used to describe how Timothy has to grab hold of the eternal life that God has given him. Take hold of it. There's a violence. There's an aggression. 
Again, I ask you, does that characterize your own walk with Christ? This is mine. Now, just to be crystal clear, this is not saying that you must save yourself by grabbing on. This is not saying that the way you get salvation is by grabbing hold strongly enough, tightly enough. That would counter everything the Bible says about how salvation works. It isn't that you must save yourself. It is not that at all. What does the Bible say about salvation? It says this, people are separated from God. Everyone, when they're born, they're not born good. They're born what the Bible would call as sinners. Separated from God, under divine wrath, and cannot save themselves. And that's why God, in His amazing love, sent Jesus Christ into the world. To be the Savior because no one could ever save themselves. We couldn't do enough, work enough, become religious enough, attend enough churchy events. We can't make ourselves Christian. We can't do anything. We need a Savior. We are drowning. No better yet, we're dead already. And we need life. And that's why God sends Jesus into the world to be the Savior. You say, well, what did Jesus do? He lived a perfect life that you and I could never live. He died on the cross, a death that we deserved. He rose from the dead and conquered death so that now He's alive right now. He has conquered sin. He has conquered death. And now He freely makes Himself available to anyone who would trust Him. Now, here's the beauty of the gospel. You say, okay, well, what must I do to be saved? You you receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and your Savior. You, You believe Him. That's it. You don't, you don't try to earn it. You don't try to do some religious stuff. You trust Him. You trust Jesus for salvation to reconcile you to God and to deal with your sin and to remove your guilt. That's how it works. You say, okay, um, 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 how, how does that all relate to me? Well, you don't have any righteousness to stand before God. But when you trust Jesus, all that righteousness that He accrued in His perfect life, yours credited to your account. You're perfectly righteous by trusting Christ. You say, well, what about all the sins I've committed? What about all this, this debt that I owe to God for all my sins? Jesus takes that upon Himself, pays for it on the cross. Your sins are paid for in full. You can be forgiven. You say, well, I'm estranged from God. I'm, I'm distant from Him. Well, Jesus then offers you His own sonship. <laughs> His own status as the Son of God. You could become a child and God adopts anyone who trusts Him by faith. You say, well, what do I do to inherit this? How do I receive the gift of His righteousness? The gift of forgiveness of sins? The gift of cleansing? The gift of adoption? Faith. Faith alone. You cannot work for it. You cannot be good enough for it. You must stop trying to work for salvation and rest in Christ. And if you're not a Christian this morning and you happen to walk into this church to, 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 to see how things are going around here, this is what we believe. None of us are making any claims that we're good people. We're all saying we deserve the wrath of God, but Jesus took it in my place and I'm trusting Him. And in Christ, I am forgiven and cleansed and adopted and forever secure for all eternity. And I have done nothing to earn it. Christ saved me. So you don't take hold of it 
to earn it. Here's what you do. How do you take hold of the eternal life? What that means is make it your own. Take hold, seize the reality of it. Let this be your own life's passion to understand and to live out this gift of salvation that God has given you. Paul would say in the letter to the Philippians that, that though God has given the salvation free to those who receive it by faith, that they are still called to work out their own salvation in fear and trembling. I think this is the same kind of principle. You've been called to salvation. Take hold of it. Live as if it's true. Seize it. This eternal life to which you are called. That's what he says. The eternal life to which you are called. And then he says, and about which you made the good confession. So about this, this eternal life, you made a confession. There's some dispute about what is being talked about. And some of the scholars argue back and forth whether it's referring to some confession he made when he was being ordained to the ministry or if it was a confession that he made at his baptism. I think it's his baptism. I think he's referring to the testimony that Timothy gave when he was baptized. And I think I believe that because, or the reason I believe that, is because he's referring to eternal life. And typically, when you're sharing at your baptism, you're talking about how God saved you and how you have come to know eternal life. And so I think what's happening here is Paul is saying, hey, you made a confession in the presence of many witnesses when you were baptized. You made this profession that you're trusting Jesus for eternal life. Now I know you made that profession, but grab hold of it. Don't let it go. Don't let it slip away. Don't let it fade in terms of its importance. You have eternal life. Live like it. Eternity is coming. You'll stand before God. Take hold of the reality that you have been given eternal life. Is there an aggression to your obedience? Is there even a violence to your desire to be so faithful to the truth? Not a violence against people, but a violence against your own sin and a violence against your own propensity to drift. So that's the first big idea here for how we live in light of eternity, that you get aggressive in your walk with Christ. Secondly, to serve in light of eternity, get a clear focus on your responsibility. So first, don't compromise your character. Don't, don't, don't get wrapped up in all this money-loving, earthly stuff. Have a character that's godly and righteous and true. But secondly, don't compromise your mission, Timothy. Timothy, you've got to know what you're responsible to do while you're here. You've got a job to do. Now, now read with me. We're going to kind of hit 13 on our third point. If we have time to do that, we're going to fo- more focus for verse 14. But read with me 13. We'll get through it and get to 14. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Jesus Christ, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained. That's the charge. Do you see it? Keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time time, and then he begins to go and describe some attributes of the God that they serve. 
Paul clarifies to Timothy what is at the heart of his responsibility. And in verse 14, do you see it there? Here's what I'm commanding you to do before God. Here's what I'm commanding you to do before Christ Jesus. Keep the commandment unstained, free from the reproach until Jesus comes back. This is to be the focus of his ministry. We say, what's the commandment? What is he trying to keep clear? I think that the commandment being referred to here is the gospel of Jesus Christ and all its implications. That what Timothy is to do and what the church is responsible for is to make sure that the gospel message and all, all that it entails is kept and preserved for the church and for coming generations. You know it has to be for uh, coming generations because how long is he supposed to keep it pure? Until when? Until Jesus comes back? Uh, so that means that this is more than just Timothy doing his job and he's done. Timothy wants to protect the gospel from being stained by lies, being stained by errors, even being stained by people who try to communicate it but don't have any integrity and so they put blemish on the gospel. They ought to keep it unstained until Jesus comes back. That means Timothy is not only concerned about how his church does. He's not only concerned about how many people he puts in his building. That's not his main, main concern. He wants the gospel to be so clear that it's received by the church and then it's passed on to the children and to the lost who then come in and they become saved and then they become the church and from generation to generation all the way until Jesus returns the church is faithfully preaching an unstained, unadulterated gospel. That's the goal. That was Timothy's mission. Don't let this gospel that you have come to believe get stained by a reproach of character. Don't let this gospel that you have come to believe become blemished because you let error slip in and you've got distracted by all these other things. He's responsible to make sure that the church is preaching the gospel, yes, but to work so that the church continues preaching the gospel long after he's gone until the Lord returns. You say, okay, well, how is he supposed to be doing this? Uh, how, what, what is, how does he keep it unstained? Really, guys, that's what this whole letter has been about. How do you make the church structured biblically so that it protects preserves, upholds the gospel. What is the church according to chapter 3? It's the pillar and buttress of the truth. Right? So the, tru the, the church is here to uphold, to preserve, to protect the gospel. Yes, for us. But for our children and our children's children, we pray that our church would be a place where our grandchildren would come and be confident they can keep hearing the same gospel that saved us. That's what we desire. You say, how do you do that? Well, you got to make sure you get the message right, right? You can't be preaching a false gospel. That's why this whole letter has been over and over again talking about the importance of sound doctrine. you got to have trustworthy people in leadership, right? That's why this letter again and again has been referring to character. So you not only need to get the content of the message right, you got to get the character of the leaders right. Well, what do you do? What's, what's third? You also got to have people to transmit the message to. You got to pass it on. And that's why in chapter 2 of 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy 2 2, Paul tells Timothy, What you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Do you see that train there? You got Paul. 
Paul's teaching Timothy. Timothy's teaching faithful men. And what are the faithful men doing? Teaching others also. You see four links in the chain. How does the gospel get passed on from generation to generation through the ages? It's by people who believe it. They have the character to correspond to it. They know it. And then they transmit it to people that they love and they care for. This is our responsibility to do this until Jesus returns. Friends, this is the heart of what we do as a church. Have you noticed that? is that we're very interested in being very truthful and doctrinal. But we don't want to do that and neglect the fact that we are now responsible to pass this doctrine on to another generation. I hope we all sense the obligation that Timothy felt when Paul said this. This is your job. Let the gospel, don't, don't let you be a reason the gospel gets stained and blemished. Let your life be one of character. Let your life understand the gospel and then pass it on to the people around you. An illustration that really puts this into a picture that helps us understand it is what I heard once about a pastor who is in Romania during a time of extreme persecution. He left the country and wanted to spend some time in the States so that he could get some theological resources to bring back to the church that was, uh, didn't have much access to anything that they could use to train their pastors. So this pastor missionary left, was able to accumulate boxes of good, sound doctrine, uh, books that, that were sound and could help the pastors in training. <clears throat> But then he realized and he understood that if he were to come back with a giant box filled with Christian books, he would put not only himself in danger, but the ministry that was happening in Romania in danger and perhaps ruin the whole thing. So he wasn't sure what he would do and how he would transmit all these books. And in the providence of God, right around the same time as he was trying to return to Romania, there was a Christian choir that had been cleared to go to Romania and, and sing for some of the churches out there. And these two people got in contact, the leader of the choir and this missionary, and his idea was this. Instead of me trying to get all these books in, in like a carry-on, brought through systems to get to the people who need these books, how about we all take one or two books? And they agreed to do it. So everyone in the choir took a book or two and they packed it in their stuff and they got through it and no one asked a question. And what they did on the other side is they accumulated those books and they got them together and they were able to distribute them to the churches and the pastors that needed their care. How did they do it? They divided it up among many people. If one of them went down, they would still get most of the books through. Uh, they were all working together. It wasn't one person's job. Now, in the same way, you can use that imagery to describe how do we make sure that the gospel continues moving? How do we make sure that the gospel goes to the next generation? How do we ensure that? What do we do? We make sure that as many people as we can know the truth, are living lives reflective of that truth, and they're taking it with them into the places where they have influence, into their homes, into their workplaces. They're helping people understand this great news, and then they're enlisting them to do the same thing and to spread the gospel even further. All of us have this responsibility, don't we? Every Christian is in some way responsible for helping the truth get passed on unstained, without blemish, and without reproach. Parents at home, 
This is a weighty responsibility you have with your children, isn't it? That God has put those children under your roof where they can hear the gospel and be exposed to the truth from a young age, and you can shepherd and disciple them. If you're wondering, hey, where do I start in this effort to make disciples? If you've got kids in the home, start right there. Start with them. They're the first people that you can bring. They're your first disciples. They are your unreached people group. <laughs> they aren't born Christians. They need you to tell them what it means to be a Christian and to train them up. All of us have this. I hope there are men in this room. You may aspire to be an elder. You may not. That's immaterial for the point. Is that I hope you have this desire to be a guardian of the gospel. To love the truth and protect it and then to transmit it to people who will also propagate it. This is every member ministry. If you've been in our membership class, you know that we call everyone to ministry. Right? You've been through the class, you know that there's a, there's a whole section devoted to talking about everyone's responsibilities. We want every member saved. We want every member committed. We want every member known. We want every member serving. We want every member discipling. Timothy has a unique and specific responsibility for the leadership of this church to make sure the gospel is clear, unstained, without reproach until Jesus comes back. But he is the leader and doing this in this church, but he's not to be doing it alone. He's to be equipping the whole church to be doing this. This is our responsibility. This gospel is so glorious that we want as many people as we can to hear it and believe it. Who are you helping to know and follow Jesus? I hope names come into your mind. And if there aren't any names that come into your mind, I hope maybe you're encouraged to think more about this. Maybe you could start praying for your friends that don't know the Lord or your neighbors that are far from Him. Maybe you could be diligent about building relationships with other people at the church so you can know how you can serve them and help them follow Jesus. Really practically, guys, this is why throughout the week there are times that we're, we have people over our house several times, several nights of the week, and this is not just myself, my family, there's several families are always opening their homes. This is why we try to do meals together a lot. This is because we hope that we can create these relationships where we know each other. You say, well, why do we want, care about knowing each other? It's because how can we help each other unless we know what the needs are? And so we get into each other's lives and we are ready to get messy with one another because following Jesus isn't easy. And so we build these relationships. We get into each other's lives. We weave our lives together. We build this culture of truth and love. Why? Because this glorious gospel that we have trusted in that we have been saved by. We want it to be passed on. We want this place to be a place that is preaching the gospel many, many, many years after we're all gone. How do we do that? We all take responsibility in the ways God has enabled us with the opportunities He's put in our path to know it, to have character that doesn't contradict it, and then to transmit it to the people around us. 
we're maybe going to get to the rest of this section, but we're not. But I'll just say this. What's the motive for all this? What, is, what does Paul use to motivate Timothy? Very simply, it's God. God is meant to be the fuel, the very real, living God is the motivation for this kind of aggressive obedience in this focused ministry. God Himself is the motivation. I hope our thoughts of God are not so low that they don't inspire any sort of holy ambition. I hope our thoughts of God are lofty and glorious and true so that they call us to this great purpose of serving Him to the degree that we have a low view of God is the degree that we will have a low commitment to service. That will be next week's sermon. (laughs) Because that's how he aims to inspire Timothy. Hey, Timothy, get a load of the God you serve. We're going to pray together, and then we're going to invite up some of our new members, and then we'll have a baptism. Would you join me in prayer? Lord, you have given us this calling. You've given us this calling to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You have given us this responsibility to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until you return. Lord, you're coming, and we have a job to do until you do. And Lord, I pray that we would all take it very seriously to know the truth, live in light of the truth, and do our best to transmit the truth to those around us. Lord, that we would be aggressive in running away from the things that distract us and compromise us, and that we would pursue with aggression a righteous and holy and godly lifestyle. These things are all impossible for us to do apart from the help of Your Holy Spirit. So help us, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.